This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the advicey sidecar to working's majestic interview-fueled motorcycle. I am Isaac Butler. And I'm June Thomas. June, I really want to catch up with you, although we did just record yesterday, so maybe we can skip that and get right (laughs) to the meat of it. We have a listener voicemail, and I'd love to pick your brain about it. Do you mean a listener voicemail? Oh, yes, that's right. I mean a listener voicemail. Outstanding. uh, Great. Here it is. Hey, y'all. My name's Ben Childers. I'm from Arlington, Virginia. Been a long time late plus supporter. And my question has to do with transitioning from being a frontline worker at a company to moving into senior leadership. And what I have found over the last year or so as I have fully made that transition is most of my work has shifted from necessary and urgent to necessary but not urgent in kind of that four-quadrant structure. And I've found my main challenge is simply how to fill in a three-hour focus work block section that I have in my calendar, what to do, how to prioritize it, how do you take a two-year goal, which I have a few of those, and start breaking those down into manageable chunks, and was wondering if y'all had any advice on how to do that. June, before we talk about anything else, I have no idea what this quadrant thing <laughs> is that Ben just talked about. And I I just know you know what it is. So what is it? Can you explain it to me and our listeners? I sure do. So this is the Eisenhower matrix. And the concept here is that there are things that are important and urgent, important and not urgent, not important and urgent, and not important, and not urgent. And the idea is that you make your decisions as to what to do with these things, with these tasks or whatever they are, based on where they fall on that matrix. And did Eisenhower develop this? Was it like invading Normandy, urgent (laughs) and important, you know, cleaning my socks, urgent and not important, or, you know, whatever? Yeah, I can't say exactly, you know, where kind of Dunkirk falls on this. But yes, I believe it is indeed that. Getting our boys home, urgent and important. Um, Exactly. So first of all, I just want to say thank you to Ben so much for this voicemail. It's great. And you ask a number of really important practical questions. But I want to sidestep the practical questions for just a moment here to talk about the emotions. Because I know this experience of being overextended or, you know, having everything that's crossing your desk being super important. And it's really thrilling. That's a thing that that people don't like to admit, but there is something really thrilling to being like, every minute of today, I have to be doing something and it's really important and I know what it is and I'm going and I'm going and I'm going and I'm going and I'm going. Uh, I actually find that feeling very seductive and have to watch out for it. And when you transition away from being in that world 
to a world of making steady progress on long-term projects, there is a kind of emotional loss associated with that. There is a kind of thrill that is not replicable and you have to find a way to fill that void. And at least that's been my experience. And I was wondering, June, mm-hmm. uh, because you have recently transitioned away from a very busy and demanding job at Slate so that you could write full time and focus on steady progress on a long-term project. How have you been handling this? What's it been like for you? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Isaac. I did go through a version, I think probably a kind of bizarro version of this when I left my management job at Slate earlier this year. And, you know, I said my experience was bizarro because when it comes to work, at least, I now have a lot fewer things to worry about. You know, basically just my own writing, a couple of podcasts. And I guess in a way I was kind of stepping off the career ladder because usually a promotion or a better job means doing this kind of stepping back a little and kind of widening the scope of your thinking and your responsibilities, the kind of thing that Ben is talking about. So yeah, I definitely have gone through that, but I think it's much easier in the direction that I did it. Yeah, than when you're going to upper level management. When yeah, know, yeah, 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 especially if you're an egomaniac like me, like oh, I get to just work on my own stuff. Great, bring it. You know, that's you know, pretty. That's thrilling. definitely in my mental rolodex. Egomaniac's definitely where I have you filed. That's definitely how <laughs> yeah. I how I think of you. Yeah. But I also want to say, though, that I really do think that what Ben is going through is something that's really challenging because we talk a lot about, like, what's it like to start a new job, what to move into a new workplace, to figure out, you know, the, the culture and all of that stuff. And we don't really talk much about what it's like to move from one position to another in, you know, a workplace that you've been at for a while. You know, there's not a lot of talk about it. There's not a lot of support for it and a lot of advice about it, I think. So I'm really glad that Ben asked this question. You know, I would also say that another nice thing about urgent tasks is that they prioritize themselves. When you have two things and one is due tomorrow and one is due in 90 minutes, you know which thing you're going to do when. And it sounds like our caller is really struggling a bit with prioritization uh, right now. How do you think about prioritization in your day-to-day work? Well, I think about it a lot. And I think this is where, as someone who enjoys the productivity industrial complex... Which Eisenhower warned us about. I know, I know the show. In his final speech, right? (laughs) Exactly. I'm obliged to mention the Franklin Covey notion of the big rocks. So he used to do a demonstration where he presented a person with a glass bowl full of pebbles. So these pebbles represent the small tasks and the small things that kind of get in the way, but also sort of need to be taken care of. And then he also gave them a bunch of really important tasks and they were represented by rocks. And he said, can you get these rocks into the bowl of pebbles? And they would try They couldn't. So like, you know that these are the important things, but you just can't get them in the mix. If your glass bowl is already full of pebbles, it's just really hard to deal with the rocks. But if you put the big rocks in first, that is to say your big tasks, and then you cover it all up with pebbles, you can fit everything into the glass bowl. It might not be the best idea, but you can. You still have to take care of the big rocks, the big tasks first. I will now mostly dispense with the aquarium imagery, but I will just say that you can fill the vessel that is your workday with all kinds of things, tasks, priorities, to-dos, whatever. But that doesn't mean you can take care of them all. You have to remember which are the rocks, 
the really important things and take care of them before you deal with the pebbles. And what it sounds like to me is that Ben is finding it hard to figure out his new rocks. Can I make it? Can, can we, if we do this again, can we just do it with ice cream sundae ingredients with like the <laughs> scoops of the ice cream and then maybe Reese's pieces? Because I feel like yeah. that's a more appetizing way of thinking about it. It is, except when the ice cream melts, I'm not sure how we're going to like pull out that urgent mm, and that's a good uh, point. yeah, anyway. But yes, we can kind of leave aquariums behind if you're not comfortable with that. But I do think it's an kind of a, a useful image to contemplate when you're feeling stuck, like what are the things amid all of this stuff that really matter? I think when you move from a job where the thrill, which I agree, Isaac, there is definitely a thrill of handling important and urgent tasks and you shift toward important but not necessarily urgent work, you should take, in my view, a systematic inventory of your responsibilities. Again, more basic productivity stuff, but I would recommend doing a brain dump exercise similar to the one that David Allen suggests in Getting Things Done. You'll recall that when you start doing GTD, it's all about clearing your noggin of all the things you need to do or want to do soon, someday, or maybe, and getting them down on paper so that you can tackle them. And for this new position, relatively new position, I'd suggest that Ben goes through a similar exercise where he writes down all the areas he needs to be thinking about. Things like managerial responsibilities and then kind of break them down further. Who do you manage? What challenges are they facing? What can you do to help them figure out their next career step? And once they've figured it out, what can you do to help them achieve it? Then another area might be strategic challenges that your company or your division or whatever are facing. Obviously, I have no idea of the specifics of Ben's job, but there are usually some big questions that people in leadership are noodling on, trying to figure out. Write them down. Are there things you can read up on that will be useful there? Are there exercises you can do to generate ideas? Again, perhaps your work generates some kind of data. And even if it's not your job to analyze that data, what can you see with your perspective from the areas you're most familiar with? What are your goals, either the ones you came up with in your annual review or the ones you're pondering for your life? So whatever else you're dealing with, whatever things are your areas of responsibility, write them down, break down your job. And then if you have a three hour focus block every day, maybe you can tackle a different focus or a different area every day of the week or on some kind of semi-formal schedule. Like, does that make sense to you, Isaac? Or does that just seem like a lot of productivity mumbo jumbo? No, I mean, I think actually you, you've you done a great job of explaining step by step how to do this sort of thing, which is actually something that I need to start doing right now because I'm being pulled in a bunch of different directions and I need to figure out what do I actually need to do in each of these things to keep moving them forward. So no, no, I, I really appreciate it. I think it's great. It's definitely not mumbo jumbo. We do need to talk about how you actually break down the large projects into those smaller components. And we will do that after this. Hey, listeners, do you have any tips for approaching big creative tasks or for how to make it possible to have a daily creative practice? Get in touch and share your advice. You can email us at workingatslate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. All right, back to Working Overtime. 
June, one thing you and I are very familiar with, I feel like, is breaking down large projects into smaller components, whether it's, you know, when we launched this show originally or, you know, I finished a book, you're in the middle of a book. I learned a lot about how to do this from researching the method because Stanislavski was extremely interested in how you break down the process of acting, the process of putting on a show, the process of creating a character so that it would not be overwhelming. And Mm. he called those bits that you break down a role in, or whether it's the creation of a role, like first you memorize your lines, then you do this, then you do that, or the role itself. Here's mm. this chunk of a scene. He called those bits and you put those bits together and you have the whole thing. And uh, it's been really influential about how I think about long-term tasks. And I have my way that I go about divvying up that stuff, but I want to hear yours first because <laughs> I'm in the host chair this time. So uh, you get to go first. Yeah, first of all, I really don't see how you can do anything without knowing what it is you have to do, right? I mentioned getting things done earlier, and although I haven't really followed that method for many years, I do think that the initial brain dump where you figure out, what do I need to do? What can I do? What would I like to do? Productivity types call this the ultimate source of truth, and you have to trust it. Um, so Wait, I'm sorry, I, they call it the ultimate source of truth? Yes, the ultimate source of truth. That you have to create your ultimate source of truth and you have to trust it. And because you can't be questioning it, you you have to think, okay, this is my list. This is my, you know, this is, the, I won't say the Bible, but like, yeah, it's what you need to do. And you can't be doubting it or else it's pointless. Got it. So it's like Moses came down from Mount Sinai <laughs> with a, well, with him, in his case, it was a checklist of things not to do, I guess. <laughs> That's right. I'm all about the checklists. I mean, I don't always, I always lose track of them. I'm very bad about my, you know, my therapist is always like, get a whiteboard and then write on the whiteboard. I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm going to lose the whiteboard. Um, (laughs) So you have that big thing you want to do. Book, conference, fire a bunch of people, whatever it is. And then uh, what are the things that it is comprised of? You know, the three or four things. And then what are the three or four things that those things are comprised of? And so on and so forth. Once you get a few layers down, you might not even need to keep the checklist unless it makes you feel really good to cross things off. But, you know, at that point, you're getting down to minute tasks. Write Erica an email or whatever. And uh, it gets a little more intuitive. You'll know when you've reached the point when you've really populated these lists. And then what comes next for me is the creation of deadlines. Because mm-hmm. I think, because that adds in, even though it's totally fake and constructed by you, it creates that sense of urgency and needing to get things done immediately that will replace that emotional thrill that I was talking about. So, for example, you want to write a chapter a month of your book. We're going to talk about this on many, many working episodes, I know. But you want to write a chapter a month of your book. It will take you one week to draft the actual chapter. That leaves 3.5 weeks. Two-ish are going to be researching. One is going to be outlining. What that translates to is you start researching on the first of the month. Your calendar has a thing in it on the 16th of the month that says wrap up researching. Your calendar has a thing on the 23rd that says finish outline by 23rd. And then it has a thing on the 31st that says be done writing the chapter. You have, boom, created (laughs) very immediate deadlines for that very long-term project. And the more you put those deadlines in your calendar, the better. You're going to blow a bunch of them because you've made this whole thing up and you're going to need to readjust it. It is worth, you know, you have to sort of vacillate between knowing that you construct 
constructed this whole thing and it's made up and meaningless and feeling like God imposed it and it's very serious and you have to take it very seriously. You have to kind of move in between those two states willy nilly because you will soon learn, oh, it actually takes me more time to do this. I need to adjust those deadlines. I need to be forgiving when that happens and have a sense of yeah. humor about it. But you'll you'll see it'll create that sense of urgency really fast. Yeah. And and I actually think that the like even in a in a job like Ben's describing where you just don't have those daily fires that you need to put out, you can, again, kind of fake it. Like somehow even knowing, as you've said, you just created this deadline. It's not like it's for anyone else. You know, like it even you can fool yourself. And I think. Okay, I said I wouldn't say anything else about rocks and pebbles, but I I can't stop myself. Can you please, can you say ice cream scoops and Reese's Pieces (laughs) or something? Okay, so you need need some Reese's Pieces. I wish you all Uh, could see the face that June is making trying to accommodate my request. Never mind, we could talk about about aquariums, it's fine. (laughs) Never mind. You do need a few pebbles slash Reese's Pieces. In order to, you know, what you said before, right? So you need that dopamine rush. It's really hard to get that like thrill that you get from putting out a fire, even though it takes you out of your concentration, even though it means you can't, quote, get any work done to put out a fire. It is also thrilling. So if you can kind of fake a few just, you know, smoky elements so that you can, you know, just take a little bit of time away from the deep thinking uh, and then get back to the deep thinking. But I think another thing that we've concluded in many of these episodes is it's good to vary the kind of tasks that you do. So yeah, just just try and mix it up a little bit. But agree, it's really all about deadlines and breaking things down and just knowing what it is you have to achieve. And I will also say here that it's very clear that Ben is your kind of listener, June, because he (laughs) knows the lingo of uh, productivity. And one of the things that he brought up is the three-hour block of time to work. One of the things you usually do is you you set aside – three hours of work and you know he wants to know how do i know to get something done within that and you know i often don't think that way maybe it's because once i've got the deadline set up it just makes it very obvious what i should be doing during that time sometimes also you need to wool gather during that three hour time you need to go on a walk and think about what your job is or you need to you need to not be doing incredibly high stakes work all the time it's actually exhausting to do that so i don't always think about that question, really, unless I'm on a real deadline and something needs to be finished. I was just wondering how you approach it. Yeah, I definitely try to do three-hour time blocks. Again, I think this is another productivity guru. Cal Newport is big on this. So for me, it's about being as prepared as possible for your block, because if there's any possibility of being distracted, I know I will be distracted uh, and that can lead to lost time. So not only do I have my list of three or four things that I'm committing to tackling each day or in my blocks, I also have a couple of checklists that I look at before and after I start. So in the morning, I have a startup checklist that I look at before I get to my focus work. And it's I've got six questions or tasks. Do you have this? Do you need this? Do you know? Um, And they're designed to clear my head of distractions. And one of the things is asking myself, do you need to check X? I'm too embarrassed to say what it is, but I will just indicate that it's something that is not really anything I need to do. It's just something I want to do. And it definitely distracts me. So if I look before I focus, then it's gone then out of my head. Mm. And at the end of the day, 
I have another checklist. This one is for shut down. And uh, that's about closing the loops for the day and also setting up the next day, looking at the calendar, reminding myself of anything I have to do, and then creating the next day's task list. And I'm kind of waving waving an imaginary thing in my hand because I really do write the three or four things on a on an index card. So yeah. it's quite real for me. You know, one thing that you just said there that I think is really super helpful is that when you sit down for those three hour blocks of time, you know, when you sit there for your 9 a.m. to noon, you know, you're getting at your desk, you're going to work through till lunch. It's really helpful if you already know what you're going to do during that time. Do not spend the first 30 minutes figuring out what you're going to do. Already have it figured out. Figure it out in the car on the way to work or whatever, and then sit down ready to go. That has been enormously helpful for me for writing things on deadline. I wrote a piece for Slate recently about the tennis player Carlos Alcaraz, and that had a pretty quick turnaround. The the tournament had just ended. He had just won it. We wanted the piece to go up the next day, but I was Mm -hmm. writing about the match that was on Sunday. So like... Obviously, I knew the job was to write about him, but what was more important was that I had taken all these notes during the match so that there's no, I'm starting with ideas already. You're working already in ideas you've already generated. It is really hard to sit down and be like, well, now I'm going to work on that conference. Yeah. You know, even with a checklist, it can get a little complicated. I think that can be, that can be really difficult. It's, it's, it's like the tyranny of the blank page, right? Yes. Yeah. And of course, another way this gets more complicated is if you are juggling multiple long-term projects, as managers very, very often are, I am guessing you have a lot of experience with this from your time at Slate. So I'm curious about how you did it. Do you assign, you know, Monday is podcast production day, Tuesday is write this newsletter, Thursday is, you know, meeting day or whatever. Do do you assign them their own days or their own three-hour blocks of time? How, How do you do it? No, I I actually think that's probably a really good way of doing it, but it wasn't really possible in my slate job because there were too many other people also trying to get their stuff done. But I did make a list of my areas of responsibility and I would kind of work through them. You know, Uh, again, is there something I need to do for the people I manage? What do I need to be thinking about for the shows that I manage? Is there something I can read up on before that meeting or something I need to be prepared for? before the next meeting. And, you know, I imagine that it can seem silly to some people who, you know, don't have a similar system, who don't have a ton of workbooks or a ton of apps that they are constantly scribbling in or typing into. But for me, at least, the more clarity I can have about the things that I'm responsible for, the more I can focus on them instead of, as you were just saying, wondering what I should be doing. That's fascinating. I am a big fan personally of using lunch as the (laughs) dividing line, you know, between your tasks. So uh, you're working on one big thing in the morning, you know, uh, and then you eat lunch and maybe while you eat lunch, you watch an episode of Top Chef or maybe you take a 20 minute nap, you know, and then you uh, wake up and chug a Coke Zero. Uh, Then (laughs) in the afternoon, you're really diving into something else. You've done a whole thing. You've had a kind of ritual to release it. And now now it's time to go do the next thing. Um, if you're being pulled in a million different directions and you want to avoid it, but you still want to feel like you're making enough progress, I, I find that structure very helpful. Yeah, You know, I r- wish I had that kind of thing in place. That's something I'm still working on. I know both from reading and more to the point from my own experience that 
you cannot just sit at your desk and stare at your computer and hope that if you do that for eight or 10 hours or whatever number of hours, it's, you know, you're going to just, it just, it doesn't work that way. You have to break up your concentrated time into segments and, and you've got to have variety. But I just, it's too many years of having worked through lunch and sitting at my desk and <laughs> that I haven't figured it out yet. Um, I am, though, very glad that I got into the habit of taking a walk at some part of the workday. Um, in the early part of the pandemic, I remember Shannon Palace wrote a piece for Slate saying, hey, if you're working from home, you've got to get up and take a walk at some point in the day. And in order to kind of encourage people to do that, Alison Benedict, who at the time was, you know, one of the magazine's top editors, she put a bot in Slate Slack that popped up every day and said, go out and take a walk. And so, you know, at some point she killed that bot. But weirdly, I I needed to be told to do that. And I'm glad that I eventually did develop that habit, not only for my health, but also, as you say, Isaac, for my creativity and productivity. But I'm still working on the breaking up the day. So was taking a walk an urgent but unimportant task? <laughs> an important but not... Which, which quadrant was it in? Oh, which quadrant? I think it's urgent but unimportant. Ah, there you go. But you know what <laughs> urgent and important task we have just checked off our list? Taping this episode of Working oh, Overtime. Well done. Thanks to Ben Childers for the great question. If you have a question, comment, idea, or problem you need help with, no matter what quadrant it belongs in, we would love to feature it on this show. Just write us at workingatslate.com or give us a call and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working and Working Overtime. Big thanks to Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. You guys are the wind beneath our wings. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>